Fedheads, you're tuned in to another episode of Sharing... No, wait! This isn't Sharing Our Pairings, this is Cigar Chat, broadcast live around the world, picked up on the Armed Forces Radio Network. I'm your co-host, John the Cigar Surgeon. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, or host, really, because he's, uh, he's the new, really the new transitionary the, MFNC. I don't even uh, know what your title is. I don't really have a title. I What I like to say is, I am the captain now. You are the captain now. Nice. Uh, at least as far as all SIGBED media goes. Um, you're you're yeah. at the helm. That's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're here to talk about Connecticut. Connecticut. Uh, we had a pretty cool experience. So we kind of came into this on sort of the tail end of it. So what it really was is a continuation of the trip that Jared and Logan talked about. And I think that was like the end of January, maybe early February. Yeah, the trip that we um, I don't think I think I don't think we got the invite for that one. I don't think so. But, I mean, you can't expect them to send four people. No, I, I was just thinking send us two instead of those two. Oh, well, that, that would work, too. Because I'm a jerk like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so the idea of this trip came up during that trip. And then they basically invited everybody who was there. And Logan couldn't go. Um, so uh, I guess two of us makes one of him. That's right. So, I mean, that's cool, I guess. So for people who, um, maybe I'll just backtrack a little bit. So uh, General Cigar Company was nice enough to fly a number of, uh, and I'm not going to call them bloggers anymore because I think bloggers is a derogatory term. Uh, I'm forever now going to call them new media, which is I think the term that uh, Barry Stein used last night. Um, so they uh, they took new media and brought them out to uh, New York um, and then uh, off to Connecticut to see the the magic behind Connecticut tobacco, and it was a it was a rapid two and a half days. I mean, I you know I really wish New York being New York, I really wish I had more time in New York. Yeah, um, I'd say that was probably about the right amount of time for Connecticut there because like we started at about nine thirty, ended at like one in the morning something. Yeah, yeah, about there. Yeah, yeah, and I mean. For Connecticut, there's just not a lot to do in that part of Connecticut. Um, at least not... Grow tobacco and drink fine beer. Yeah, there, there's not you that what? much tobacco-centric stuff to do there. I mean, you can smoke cigars, obviously, but there's not a lot to see. Once you've seen a couple farms like we did, yep. there's just not a whole lot else to it. Um, now, let, let me... Before we get into the, the specifics... All right. Let me uh, let me just ask you, what was your overall impression of the trip? Like your overall takeaway? I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun, and um, it's very easy for me to think General Cigar is just a, a big conglomerate that makes cigars. Um, which, they which just want to make cigars and make money, um, which they do. But what what I don't think about when I used to think of General Cigars is the people, and it's like any other cigar company; they just make a lot more cigars. They're, it's people who are really passionate about tobacco, who want to make good cigars, sell them at a fair price, and uh, like make an impact on the industry. They don't want to just, they don't want people to just go in every week and buy their Macanudos and have that be the bulk of their business. They they really want people to be passionate about their products, and they're making cigars that are uh, that that kind of crowd resonates with better. I think um, so, this is so- a big change from a few years ago. Yeah, so I'm going to jump in, um, and just to a great comment that Barry made last night, uh, if you haven't tuned into Sharing Our Pairings, I listened to it on the way to work this morning uh, to catch up, and uh, he made a really great comment that I just want to address, and he said that you know, he didn't really feel the love from, I think, uh, and I think he was really referring to all, all, all new media, didn't really feel the love from General Cigar, and I just want to address that because 
you know, having been to three IPCPRs, uh, I can say without question that General Cigar Company is one of the most, if not the most, welcoming company when it comes to cigar media. And I mean that mm-hmm. uh, honestly and truly. Um, Victoria, who's there, you know, Victoria wears a ton of hats at the company. Um, she, when she, you know, talking about the IPCPR stuff, uh, she sets us a, a, a manageable uh, time frame beforehand in advance of the show. Um, they stick to it down to the minute. She has all of her people on track for that. Um, and they really, really take care of you. Uh, and you don't feel like you're just another cog in the machine as new media. Um, it, you know, I, I genuinely get the feeling that, you know, everyone there knows us, everyone there cares about us. Everyone there reads our stuff. They're happy to participate in new media. Um, so I would say, you know, and especially given that they're such a huge company, it's nice to see that out of the big companies because I think a lot of times the big companies maybe don't get, and certainly evidenced by some of the comments last night, um, maybe the big companies don't get some of that respect. I, I think they work really hard. And I think this trip to Connecticut is a good example of where, you know, they're going way beyond the extra mile for new yeah, media. Absolutely. To, yeah. Yeah. It, it, like I said, it's easy to think that they're a big faceless corporation, but mm-hmm. they're really not. And it, it's, there, there are good people there and, they they understand the impact that we have on the industry and how we impact their branding and stuff like that and how you know if if we love something it it certainly means for them that it's a good thing whether they're going to sell a ton of them or it's just going to be a little buzz but still the fact that they're welcoming us into uh, kind of their media groups like this is is a big change and is very uh, appreciated. So that was my first trip. Um, with general cigar company and, uh, other than, you know, and this is outside of their control, but the, uh, the West to East travel for me is a bit brutal. Uh, cause we lose, I lose two hours going West to East. So that kind of sucks. Uh, and that's just part of travel. So I got into New York, uh, a little bit later than the rest of the group. And, uh, I, I guess I kind of wish I'd come in the night before, or maybe a couple hours earlier in the day, it would have been nice to, uh, sit down with all the new media guys and smoke a cigar and have a have a drink and that kind of thing. Um, but I kind of arrived at the right time. Everyone went over to Club Macanudo. Um, it worked out really well. We stayed up way past my bedtime. Oh yeah, uh, by like four hours past my bedtime. So uh, I was kind of running on fumes for the next day. But I want to say because I was going in with the, the Connecticut trip, and I'm like, you know, this would be really cool. See the fields. Um, and I think part of me arrogantly might've been going, you know, okay. Yeah. See the fields, talk to the farmers, see the curing barn, yada, yada, yada. Um, because it's not my first rodeo and I've been out to Cuba and in the farms in Cuba or the tobacco fields in Cuba more times than I can count. I've obviously been to every field. Well, that's not true. I've been to many fields in Nicaragua. Um, so I've been to tobacco fields many, many times and spent, you know, many, many hours talking to farmers, asking detailed questions. And I can say without question, and I think I told you this right after the trip that this from an agronomy perspective and from a, a pre-industry perspective was probably the most innovative, informative trip that I've ever been on. And some of the information that the guys are dropping on us was like crazy, crazy next level knowledge that I had no idea about. Um, and I mean, I know because the agronomy stuff goes deep. I mean, the level of... You I mean the, the you think about the amount of knowledge you can pick up in the in the industry side of things, 
the pre-industry stuff is as deep, if not deeper. I mean, you yeah. talk about like that stuff's crazy deep. So, uh, I came away with just like a, like a boatload of information. Um, so for me, it was, you know, from a professional perspective, not just the new media perspective, it was a great trip because I learned so much about Connecticut, so much about Connecticut tobacco, so much about, uh, pre-industry stuff that I'd never, we'd never gone in detail about. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was fucking cool, man. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, there was something I was about to say and I completely lost it. Aaron. Um, to, oh yeah, I was going to tell the, so my wife got a big kick out of this. So I figured I'd tell it on the show. Oh, it's right a little, little embarrassing. So I was really hung over on Thursday morning <laughs> and I, I fell asleep on the bus. I just kind of slept most of the time and I took like two bites of my bagel. I didn't yeah. like really eat it. And I had a bottle of water and I woke up and like half awake, I took a couple sips of water and I uh, did that thing where you inhale the water. Ooh. But I had a mouthful. And so have you ever like done that thing where you try to suppress a cough and you mm-hmm. kind of like keep your mouth shut? I tried to do that and I ended up covered in water. Yes. Uh, and Victoria was nice enough to give me a couple of napkins to clean up the mess <laughs> that I made. Uh, and as soon as we got to the hotel, I went and changed because I was soaked. Yeah, I was hung over his balls the next morning. Um, and I, I pretty much did the same thing. I, they made these delicious bagels from, um, gosh, I can't remember the name. New York, not New York bagels. It was... Um, I don't know. I didn't catch bagel the company. Yeah, it's supposed to be this amazing bagel place. And it was. The bagel was amazing. amazing. But like, But like, I came in the bus and I'm like, I need water and I need sleep. Yeah. And when I'm done drinking water and I'm done sleeping, then I'll tackle this bagel. So I probably slept for the most of that two and a half hour trip. Um, yeah, I was, it was, I think it was a bit of a rough morning for most of us. I mean, yeah, I part of it, so. part of it was, you know, we knew, we knew we really only had that one night before um, we, we had the flight the next time. So uh, everyone kind of hung in there. I think we kind of um, maybe bullied around some of the other media guys to stick around and have some more whiskey with us. We but, might. Uh, everyone, everyone had a good time, I think. Yeah, it was a lot of fun that first mm-hmm. night. Um and then, of course, we drove to the fields. And like you were saying, it's growing tobacco in the U.S. is just a completely different animal. They have so a bizarre. completely different. They have the same set of problems they have to solve. They have to they have to plant the tobacco. They have to keep it watered. They have to uh, harvest the tobacco. Then they have to age the or cure the tobacco before they can really even sell it. And in Nicaragua is where I've been to several farms. And there, they don't want to set up anything to do the irrigation. They just spray stuff with hoses and kind of flood the fields for irrigation. And any kind of problem that they have, they just can throw labor at it because labor is very cheap there. Yeah. It's the materials that you need to worry about, not the labor. That's where you're going to lose money. In Connecticut, they have to pay everybody that's there minimum wage, uh, which when you've got, you know, 20 or 30 people working the fields, that can really add up really fast. So they've got a completely different set of solutions to the exact same problems, which is the most interesting thing. So I, I feel like before we get into the Connecticut stuff, because <clears throat> we're, we're uh, only a couple of minutes out from our first break here, um, maybe what we should do is get into the New York portion of the trip. Talk a little bit about the New York experience. Sure. Um, I've never been, to, you've never been to New York. I've never been to New York. I, I've been to New York a lot. I grew up in, in Connecticut. And when we wanted to go out for a weekend and just, like, do something when it was, like, 
you know, we have the next three days off, we're not doing anything, we would just take the train to, to New York because it was okay. about an hour and a half away. And then we would just spend a couple of days walking around New York doing whatever we felt like doing. Um, and then what, after I turned 21, it became, let's go to New York and get drunk and then stay with somebody in Hoboken. Fair enough. I mean, my take, because uh, I've never been to New York, so my take on New York was it's a really big city uh, that seems to have nothing but, like, uh, what I would call basic urban roads going in and out. Like, there's no, like, and that could very well be the, the roads that we took in and out of, of New York, but I didn't really see what I'm used to in a larger American city, mm-hmm. which is freeways and, uh, you know, big urban in and out. It just seemed like someone plopped this enormous city down on infrastructure that was designed for like Seattle. And yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a problem that you'll see, uh, <clears throat> in certain parts of the world where there are old cities. New, mm-hmm. New York isn't that old. It was mostly built in like the 17 and eight, late 1700s, early 1800s. That's, that's older than my country, <clears throat> dog. Well, exactly. Um, actually, I guess it was more mid 1800s where it was built early to mid 1800s. Um, yeah, still older than your country and way older than where I live. Um, but the layout of Manhattan was kind of done by the time highways became like a major thing. So generally speaking around Manhattan, you've got all these highways that dump right into the edge of Manhattan and they couldn't knock down skyscrapers to build new highways. So they just, I don't know, they keep building more buildings and the streets stay the same size. Yeah, I mean, they were they were small streets. And I mean, I think it's only about 23 and a half miles from the airport to uh, to where we were, which was uh, Midtown. Mm-hmm. So you got, I get the New York lingo down now. And uh, that was like an hour long trip. And I mean, granted, some of that was uh, there was an accident, but I suspect that that happens more often than not. So, yeah. you know, for me, an hour long. Uh, I mean, if we had an hour long commute in Calgary for 23 miles, People would be people would be shooting each other because you know I I travel uh, to and from work on a daily basis I travel something like sixty eight miles so for an hour long trip for a twenty three mile commute in one direction that was just absolutely mind boggling for me um, and I'll get more into that after uh, a word from one of our sponsors here. Brought to you by Gurkha Cigars. Gurkha Cigars, makers of the world's finest cigars. Try the 93-rated Heritage, featuring a Rosado, Ecuadorian Habana wrapper, Nicaraguan binder, and Dominican, Pennsylvanian, and Nicaraguan fillers. Blended by Gurkha's blending team at American Caribbean Cigars, it's hand-rolled Nicaraguan, available in 35-count boxes. Talk to your local B&M about the Heritage today, or talk to them about other fine Gurkha cigars. Whatever your taste preference is, Gurkha has a cigar that's right for you. Anyways, we're back. We're talking about uh, our trip to New York and Connecticut. I was just saying that uh, the commute in and out of New York, uh, it's no wonder that New Yorkers are angry. Also, um, that was the first time, and I've driven in some major American cities, Houston probably the most large of the ones that I've driven in. And that is the first time where I've seen uh, Mad Max-style road combat. Um, Oh, yeah. You know, Everyone drives really, really fast in Houston. It didn't take me very long to adjust because everyone is pretty aggressive here in Calgary. But in New York, when you want a lane, you just take the lane. You don't yes. ask. You, you don't 
barter. You just you just put your car in the lane and the other guy has to move or he's going to get sideswiped. Yeah, exactly. The trick to driving in New York is getting your front wheel in front of their bumper. Once your yeah. front wheel's in front of their bumper, you're good. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a very special type of driving. I I don't know how it quite got that way, but that's how everybody there drives. If you drive timidly, you're not going to get anywhere. And I saw a lot of it. I mean, on my hour-long commute, I saw them do it, I don't know, a half dozen, eight times. I saw guys do it to us. And, I mean, if you did that in... Um, if you did that in uh, here, um, you know you'd get you'd get run over. Yeah, and in New York, people just expect it for some reason. They're like, "All right, you got me." Um, yeah, and so what I did before John got into town, we went to the Davidoff store. Um, I smoked one cigar there, and then we went back to the hotel for a couple minutes. Then went to Club Macanudo, um, and then shortly thereafter, John and and mostly everybody else arrived. There were a couple people who were apparently really delayed. For people from general who didn't get in until late or the next morning. That's almost always why I fly in the day before when we're doing um, when we're doing events. Yeah. Because um, I mean, you can't. I mean, the one thing you can count on for airlines is uh, they're going to be late. Now, the irony is that uh, I flew WestJet, and uh, WestJet is one of the greatest airlines in Canada. In fact, the greatest airline in Canada. I don't care what anyone says. So they actually had us on the ground uh, 40 minutes in advance of when we're supposed to land. The problem with that is that New York is not anticipating a plane to be early. Yep. As such, we had no terminal to, to sit in. Uh, so they had to wait for the previous plane who was late to clear the the um, the, ter- the terminal. And as a result, we were 45 minutes. Yeah, that, that happens a lot at JFK. You, you flew into JFK, right? I did, uh, yeah. That happens a lot at JFK and even more at LaGuardia. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was good times. But um, all that aside, uh, got to the airport or got to the uh, hotel, uh, went to Club Macanudo. Club Macanudo is in Midtown. Um, and, you know, looking at the pictures online, I was a little intimidated um, because, quite frankly, it's, you know, where it is in Midtown, it definitely appears to be tailored to, uh, how do I put this, a business clientele. Right, yeah. like a professional level clientele. Um, so I tried to dress as much as possible to that level. Um, and I think Jared kind of outdid us. Gerard uh, Moonbeam came in wearing a, a suit, bit. looking like yeah. a pimp. Yeah, uh, Moonbeam was a little pimping. It was pimping, and uh, that's frankly that's kind of the, like you know we probably should have been wearing suit jackets because uh, that's the kind of place it is. And it's, it, you know they don't frown on you for not wearing suit jackets. Um, there's guys in there wearing jeans and, and a collared t-shirt. Um, but it's really a higher end, classy establishment for sure. Yeah, it's kind of like if you think of your normal cigar lounge versus the like mythical people in back rooms smoking cigars that you hear about with like politics and stuff. Yeah, it feels more like the people in back rooms smoking cigars are doing it at Club Macanudo. Yeah, like you feel like Giuliani could walk in at any moment, and that would be a normal Thursday or Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really, really classy, high-end place. So, um, obviously, we got to sample a variety of different cigars there, which was nice. Uh, I, I want to say something that might get me into hot water, and it's, it might just be my proclivity. Um, I understand that there's high-end bars. Uh, there's bars that have cutting fees. There's a whole variety of different stuff for cigars. One of the things that I think is really personal for me, and I, I tend to get a little rankled about, is don't cut and light my cigar 
yeah. Unless you ask me first. It's kind of the same thing as like, don't sniff my cigar unless I, I give it to you to sniff. Um, I, I, I mean, I know I've seen the process. I know there's thousands of hands, uh, you know, who, who knows how many hands touch a cigar before it gets, gets <laughs> to, the, who knows? Um, but, but don't take my cigar and cut it, uh, and light it for me specifically because I, I don't cut it before I light it. And I've been very particular about that. Um, so, you know, I actually had to stop the, the nice, she's a very nice lady. And I mean, she's just trying to provide customer service. So I yeah. just said, Hey, you know, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to light and cut my own cigar. Um, and she was fine with that, but it's just, I feel like it's one of those things where if you get the wrong cigar clientele, um, like if you did that to a Schwarzenegger or you did that to, you know, a higher end cigar clientele, they might not take it very well. Um, so I have a lot of anxiety about that for a different reason. So I went to a cigar bar once. I don't even remember where it was, but they, they, you know, they did the whole cutting your cigar for you thing and they chopped it like here. They took like half an inch off and it was like, what are you doing? And I have anxiety because I will not let that stand. No, and I I don't want to be in a cigar bar in an argument with the waitress because she Mm. cut my cigar wrong. Uh, I just want to do it myself. Like I always do. And just be happy with it. Now, to her credit, um, she did an excellent job of cutting and lighting. I do agree with that. Bang on fact, there was a couple times where she did a better job cutting than I did. So I felt like a bit of a (laughs) Giacomo. Um, But it's just one of those things that for me, it's a very personal thing. Um, you know, don't take my whiskey glass away when there's still whiskey in them. And, and that's actually one thing they did really, really well. Um, even if the glass was empty, it was a whiskey yeah, glass. They still ask. They still ask. You never know when there's that one drop left. You I still never want know. that drop. I might still want that drop. Um, so I would say that the service there was, was absolutely phenomenal. Top notch. Yeah. Um, the, the food, uh, I'll be honest. I wasn't expecting the food to be very good. Um, mostly because in my mind, it's really tough to combine bar and a cigar lifestyle with a good kitchen. Like to me, I don't know, that just, that doesn't seem like things that should line up. Um, quite the opposite. I would say very, very much the opposite. The food was, was excellent. Yeah. Um, absolutely high in restaurant quality. Yeah. Um, and, and there was live music there on Mm. a, I guess it was a Wednesday night, which I wasn't expecting. I mean, I would expect it on maybe a Friday night, Saturday night, but I wouldn't expect that on a Wednesday night. Yeah. Um, and he did use my scotch glass as a, uh, what do you call it, as a like a, a silencer or something for his trumpet. He played his, his trumpet his right into trumpet, it. Trumpet, yeah. And he was a classy guy. Um, came over to the table, chatted us up. Super nice guy. Uh, the band played some blues, played some jazz, um, played some rock and roll, um, played some old time Cuban songs. Got got my Guantanamera on there, which was awesome. Uh, I mean, the music was a little on the loud side, um, but it was a pretty cool experience. I mean, it's I don't know outside of Cuba where I've ever been to cigar wise where there's been live music like that. Have you had that experience before? Not really. There's there's a couple places I've been to that have that are like live music adjacent. One of the places downtown they play live music. Uh, the stage is directly above the big table in the cigar lounge. So if you happen to be smoking a cigar, you can definitely hear the music, but they're not playing it for you. And their um their drink selection, uh, I don't know, what would you say it was nine pages, maybe? 
Yeah, their 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 like whiskey selection was kind of <laughs> insane. Uh, they I I had scotches that I've never had before. I had scotches I'd never heard of. Well, I don't know. Maybe there was one I hadn't heard of, but mostly it was stuff I'd never had before and could never get at a bar anywhere that I've been to locally. Yeah, I think there was three full pages of whiskeys. There's two full pages of bourbons or a page and a half of bourbons. Uh, you know, there's three pages of wine. There was pages of port. There was, I mean, if you want a if you want a high end classy joint, uh, that was. That was for sure a high-end classy joint. Uh, there's obviously a price tag attached to that. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, if you want a high-end New York experience, that's a pretty high-end New York experience. Yeah. Out of, out of all the cigar bars I've been to in New York City, that one is by far the nicest. Okay. Um, and, and, I mean, not to say the other ones aren't nice, but that one, kind of everything is, like, at the highest level possible. The whiskey yeah. list, the food, the cigar list. Um, but, again, there's a price tag attached to that. So how are we doing for um, audience questions, comments, feedback, uh, both on CigarFederation.com and the Facebook? Uh, just a reminder, uh, we are uploading the uh, we are uploading the video to YouTube after the show now, just to streamline our processes. We're only streaming uh, to Facebook live, uh, just to make things a little bit easier on us. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of comments. Uh, Jason Savka up there in Canada, he says, I need to paint my walls. I know, man. I, I'm getting around to it someday. I'm just, uh, it's my garage. I don't really mind how it looks. I hung up some pictures, so it looks a little better for you guys. <laughs> uh, and our buddy Don Bleeker uh, says, kind of like Toronto. I'm assuming he's talking about the uh, the way you can't really get around the city very easily no. because it's just it's just too gargantuan. No, because Toronto has a 401, and the 401 is, uh, I mean, for all you want to slag the 401, the 401 is a proper freeway where you can get up to 80 kilometers, um, 90 kilometers, well, 110 if you're a crazy Torontonian. But Toronto in many ways, I mean, once you get into the downtown core, yeah, Toronto's a mess. But New York, like if you imagine your, your street in front of your house, that's the major thoroughfares in New York. Like that's just three, and it wasn't even like six lanes. It was like three lanes of that going into Midtown. And I was like, are we on the major road here? Cause this seems like we're on a back road or like a filler road to the freeway. Like, why don't we get on the freeway? Well, because there is no freeway. Um, and, and Don Bleeker's other question is, did we sample any unreleased stuff? I don't think so. We had some stuff like the, uh, like this new Macnudo Inspirado. I think they're kind of just Macanudo. shipping now. Um, there wasn't a lot of, unreleased stuff around uh, but we did smoke a lot of uh, cool old stuff yeah a lot of general stuff that I didn't realize was out there and I didn't realize how good it was at uh, Club Macanudo I smoked the Cohiba Macassar which I was really impressed with and then I still don't even know what the name of this cigar is exactly um, Ben Lee from Stogie Review ordered a Dunhill signed range, and after he started smoking it, the guy came out and said, oh, we also have this Dunhill signed range, which is a black label. Um, and so I said, I'll have one of those things with the black label, and I still don't know like what I would even call it besides a signed range with black label. Yep. But that cigar was kind of magical. That was like the cigar of the night when we were there. Oh. And we had a lot yeah. of good cigars that night. We did. Um, you know, part of the hangover is definitely the whiskey, but part of the hangover was... God, I think we smoked four or five cigars in a, well, I was going to say three hour period, but 
Usually we were there for uh, eight hours, seven hours. Yeah, seven about eight hours. Eight hour. Shut the place down, really. And we got the uh, got the chairs and the table treatment where it's like, okay, it's probably time to be leaving. Yeah. Um, it was good. Yeah, and then, of course, uh, after that, we had the hungover ride to Connecticut. Yeah, that was... Um, that was a long, that was a long ride. Uh, after being hungover, I don't think it'd be a long ride if I wasn't hungover. Um, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, that was that was definitely requiring some water. Uh, if I had to do it all over again, I would probably do the same thing. Um, you know, whatever. Uh, please stay tuned. Yeah, of course. Please stay tuned for a word from one of our sponsors. This show is sponsored by Cigar Oasis. Don't spend all your time worrying about your cigar wrappers cracking, splitting, or falling apart from humidity fluctuation issues. Set it and forget it by choosing Cigar Oasis, a professional solution which provides equal distribution of humidity with precise electronic controls. Monitor your cigars through the internet using the smart humidor Wi-Fi attachment. Why don't you spend all your time enjoying your cigars and relaxing and let Cigar Oasis protect your cigars? Cigar Oasis has solutions for any humidor. Make sure you set it and forget it today. This is Cigar Chat. I'm your host, John the Cigar Surgeon, joined as always by Trippy Trent. We are talking about our recent General Cigar Company trip to New York and Connecticut. Uh, so we're getting into our Connecticut phase here. And uh, I've never been to Connecticut. Obviously, you have. I grew um, up there. You grew up there. So you've been there once or twice. And uh, there's a couple of guys on the trip who had been there as well, um, which was kind of uh, kind of cool. It's kind of a mix of like people who grew up there, people who have been there a bunch of times, and a bunch of people who have never been at all. Yeah, there was it was really interesting because at least one person on the trip grew up within like 25 miles of where I grew up in Connecticut, um, and two other people grew up here in Portland, uh, or at least lived here for part of their uh, adolescent life, uh, which is. You know, just one of those kind of weird small world kind of things. Hopefully um, we don't have any Facebook issue. Uh, I just got a message that we were disconnected and reconnected. Uh, so I'm not, not quite sure what that's all about, but uh, hopefully our Facebook feed well, is still. The stream, as far as I can tell after the ad finish, is about seven seconds behind us. And since you said that, the the stream hasn't messed up at all. Okay. Well, whatever. Technology being technology. Things happen. I'm glad it recovered on its own. Uh, anyways, you were saying. Uh, I don't remember what I was saying. I think I was just finishing up a thought about how uh, it's just kind of a small world that people uh, who I've never met before and are in the cigar industry grew oh, yeah. up around the same place as me and then left to the other side of the country. Yeah. So um, I guess, you know, maybe I'll just kick it off uh, in, a, in a minute here with, uh, I got a little bit of a video clip. Um, we'll talk a little bit about uh, sort of broad strokes about our experience. Uh, I mean, Connecticut, I, I've, I've been to hot and humid places. I mean, I've been to New Orleans. Um, it, it was it was pretty warm in Connecticut, especially when you're standing in the field in the sun. And uh, it was definitely humid. And what's funny is uh, when we're talking to the guys who own the farm, uh, the, the fields, they were talking that uh, it really wasn't that warm. Yeah. It really wasn't that humid. They said it's actually been quite a bit cooler than uh, the normal. Yeah. So growing up in Connecticut, Connecticut has a very strange climate. It's New Orleans in the summer and Canada in the winter. Yeah. So in the, in the winter, it's, you know, three feet of snow is no big deal. And negative 10 and that's just how you live your life and then in the summer it's 105 degrees and 90 percent humidity yeah i mean it wasn't that hot when we were there it was probably high 70s maybe low 80s yeah it was like mid 80s i think most of the time it was um it was a little toasty it was i mean you stand in the field for a few hours 
Uh, I mean, you're getting your, you're getting your sheen on. There's no question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll queue up this video and then maybe we can talk about some of the specifics of, uh, of our experience. Um, so this is a little clip of, uh, one of the workers, um, doing a priming. So you can see, uh, based on the, the sort of nubs in the leaves that they've already gone through several weeks of, of, uh, priming. And I think this is like, um, I want to say day eight or day nine of priming. So they're actually, uh, pulling leaves off here. Um, and they do three leaves at a time, which is unusual because I think trippy, what we've seen is always two leaves typically. Typically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he's putting them on this long runner and then you can see him riding the bicycle and what they do. And again, this is where you're going to see things that are different in Connecticut versus other places in the world because labor is not cheap. So this runner brings the tobacco in from the field. So they're picking the entire length of the field. They're, they're priming these leaves using this bicycle to bring it in. And again, it's just one of those things where it's optimizing their labor usage. And this bicycle system was really created by the grandfather of the guy, uh, one of the owners of this, of this tobacco field, it just created it because of a, a need. Yeah. And, and this tobacco that we're looking at is Connecticut shade. Correct. Yeah. To mention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see the um, the leaves are quite large. Here's um, Brian Hewitt uh, doing his uh, best to uh, do some leaf priming. And it really wasn't that hard. Um, I was a little hesitant because, you know, I didn't want to screw up tobacco. Uh, and they kept trying to get us to get in there and just start taking leaves off. I think really, you know, the key is just to grab it by the end and, and pull it off in one motion. And again, the, the trick is uh, three leaves at a time. Um, this is a video of uh, the system they've created. So if you've ever been to a factor uh, barn You've seen in pre-industry, they tie the leaves together with string. Here, they're actually got a, they got a mechanism that runs a string through the leaves so that you can do them all at two, like two leaf pair at a time and then do a whole stick at a time, which is just nuts. Um, and then this is, of course, the OSHA approved, which, you know, this, this doesn't change. This is what I see in all the barns um, when they're loading the tobacco up into the top of the barn. Um, they pass the stick of tobacco up to the guy and then they load the barn from the very top, um, coming all the way down. And that's, uh, that's, 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 yeah, it's, it's cool though. Yeah. So some of the, some of the things that are in there that are very, very different from Nicaragua, it's first of all, like you said, the bikes, they don't need to do that. There's no reason for them to go through all the work to build a device when they can just send 15 people out to prime each row yep. and then move on to the next row. In Connecticut, they have like two or three people priming each row because they need to get it done fast and efficiently with as few people as possible. Um, and then uh, with the, the sewing thing, like that sews the two leaves together, uh, we were very hesitant to do that because we were informed that if if you get one of your little one of your little wigglies up in there. Uh, it's going to just punch a hole straight through and you'll have a string through your finger. Um, so I, I did not want to mess with that thing. I mean, that was a really, that was a really cool machine though, because I mean, you're talking about saving, you know, maybe 45 seconds per pair of leaves, uh, roughly Mm -hmm. 30 to 45 seconds per pair, but that's the kind of time savings they need to optimize. So essentially this lady, as fast as she, she can go, she's putting, uh, leaves face in, up in the thing, boom, up in the thing, boom, up in the thing. So they can do an entire, I think it was 16 pairs per stick, I think is what he said. Um, yeah. And they can do that in, I would say probably a minute and a half, maybe just yeah. under a minute yeah. and a half. Somewhere, somewhere around a minute to a minute and a half. 
uh, is what they seem to be averaging. It was short enough that I had a hard time getting pictures mm-hmm. of them doing it because I would be in the way of them removing the rack. Yeah, they're, I mean, you know, if you've been in a cigar factory, um, you know what it's like kind of standing in the way of the rollers. Well, I felt the same way in the barn where, you know, we were really impeding their pathway uh, because yeah. they, they, they were go, go, go. Um, you know, can't slow down for the gringos because like we got a job to do and this bar needs to be done. And, you know, and, and yeah, and it was, um, I mean, they were moving, they were moving. Yeah. And then a couple more big differences are the, uh, when they hang the leaves in the curing barn in Nicaragua, maybe I'm misremembering, but I'm almost certain that they rotate the tobacco every few weeks. I swore that the times that I've been in Nicaragua, they said that they take the sticks, of the the sticks of tobacco, I can't remember the name for them, but and they rotate them throughout the uh, the like the ones that start at the top work their way down, the ones that are at the bottom work their way up. That's not the way they do it in Connecticut at all. Once yeah. once they're once up they're there, there, they stay there. They don't touch them. Um, and they they also had that really interesting. Uh, they had like hundreds of propane burners. Mm. And rather than in Nicaragua, they go in dig there, see how it feels. They dig a hole light some wood fire. on fire yeah. Very. and warm up the barn. Um, but their barns are designed so differently. Uh, in Nicaragua, they've got these hard-sided barns that have big windows so they can let out humidity or let in humidity as needed. And they use the fires to raise the temperature. Yep. In Connecticut, the, every single barn was slatted. So every other slat was actually a window that popped out. So it was almost like, you know, there was almost no wall. There was 50% of a wall all the way down both sides. And the barns were enormous. I mean, I'm sure that there are curing barns in Nicaragua that are much bigger than the barns that I've traditionally seen in my tours. But I would say these barns were somewhere between three to four times larger than the barns that I've seen in Nicaragua. Like these were, these are big barns. Like yeah, they were probably, enormous. What, two, 225, 225 feet long or something like that? Easily. Probably, Easily? probably three or 400, some of them. Like, I, we didn't go in some of the long ones, but you saw those ones over in the distance. Yeah, those were. Oh like yeah, those were honking. Yeah, you could have you could have parked the seven thirty seven into those barns with with space to spare. Well, maybe not the wingspan, but the no, length. not the wingspan, but tip 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 to tail. Yeah, yeah, and Easily. and um and I would say that uh, in terms of height, they seem like they're probably twice as high, if not three times as high as the barns I've seen in in Nicaragua as well. Like we're talking, you know, like. I'm probably overestimating, but I feel like it was probably about 70 to 80 feet high easily. I don't know if they were that high. I don't it was, know. It was pretty high. I mean, when he was shining the uh, flashlight up into the ceiling to show us. Oh yeah, how, that's true. That I couldn't. did seem really high. That was really high. And, um, you know, there, I mean, they had, uh, I took a picture of the, um, they had a cool chart, um, to do the math of uh, what the ambient humidity was in the, in the barn to see whether the ambient humidity mm-hmm. was rising or, or falling. Um, based on a number of different factors. And I mean, like I said, uh, he probably spent two hours talking to us about just the science behind, um, you know, when they use a burner, um, at what point you stop using the burner. Um, he probably laid down, I think it was eight or nine different smells in the barn that can indicate different bad things that might be happening with your tobacco. Yeah. Which is really interesting. I mean, I'm sure that happens in Nicaragua, but they've never talked about it specifically. But it's like uh, you walk into the barn and you immediately know what the problem is, which is just really cool with no technology at all. And one of the other things I think that was really cool 
is he was talking, well, there's a couple things. First of all, he was saying if you had a leaf uh, fall off instead of uh, being picked um, and somebody had stepped on it, you could actually see that on a leaf. Yeah. You'd actually see a footprint uh, where the part of the leaf was curing and part of the leaf was, wasn't curing. And the other thing which I found really interesting but was... He said with the footprint, if you stepped on... Like, if you stepped on a leaf while it's in the field, a suit, like, moments after it was picked, you would be able to see that exact footprint on a finished cigar. After it goes oh. through curing, after it goes through fermentation, after it goes through the processing uh, to get turned into a cigar, it still would leave a mark uh, indelible enough for you to be able to easily see that there was an, a mark there. Which seems like a cool branding potential for you know a cigar company out there but i'm sure it probably jacks the leaf up in such a way that it just um you know it, it compromises the uh the integrity of that wrapper leaf yeah that's going to be the next uh like you know the cigars that have bands made of tobacco they they used to have the uh one of the oliva master blends i think it was the number two had had two laser etched in the wrapper right um soon you'll see nike across the wrapper nike or reebok uh, or Vans, if you're that kind of guy, which, you know, I am. Um, also, the other cool cool thing um, was if you'd primed out of order. That is, if someone had gotten lazy in the field and primed an extra leaf that they shouldn't be or been priming out of order, uh, you could actually see it in the barn. So this oh, is yeah. probably, what is it? I think it was like the five or six day mark. So you can see the leaves starting to turn yellow. And every maybe, in this barn, maybe every 85th leaf or 80th leaf, you'd see one green leaf. And that was a leaf that had been primed uh, essentially a day or two too early, and it was behind the rest of the leaves. It hadn't had yeah. a chance to fully mature. It was primed out of order, and as a result, it wasn't curing at the same level as the rest of the leaves. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I think was cool is in the morning, uh, actually, I guess all throughout the day, it was cool that we were smoking cigars that were made with the wrappers that we were watching grow. Like, so first we went to the... Um, the first one I went to was Connecticut Habano, which was the Partagas Black, which has a Connecticut Habano Lajero. And I think that was the one where they really like chopped those leaves down. Like they chopped the top of the plant off and then they, pr- they pre-prime all of the like Viso and Seiko. Yeah, they the cut plant. all the Viso and Seiko off the plant and then they have a substance to, uh, to make sure that it doesn't yeah. grow back. Yeah, so it's essentially plants that only grow Lajero. So you end up with this really strong, thick Lajero. Crazy thick leaves, crazy. Thick. Yeah, they were unbelievable. Like you, you it was like leather. rawhide. Yeah, it and was it, like it was like rawhide for sure. I mean, like, I mean, an eighth inch thick is is way thicker than it actually is, but it felt like an eighth inch thick leaf. You could, it felt like you could have made a wallet out of this stuff. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then we saw the uh, the Connecticut broadleaf that's used to make. I took the band off, but to make the uh, Partagas or the uh, Macanudo Inspirado, and then we smoked the uh, the Macanudo Gold, which uses the Connecticut Shade that they were growing right in that field, which was kind of cool. I mean, we've been to fields before. I've never smoked specifically the tobacco that's being made in that field while I'm in the field before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here for a word from one of our sponsors. Show brought to you by Drew Estate. Until June 30th, if you're a Drew Diplomat member, you attend a rewards program event and make a promotional purchase, you will receive a Liga Privada Velvet Rat. You'll also be entered to win a Drew Diplomat Pewter Ashtray, Mega Standing Ashtray, or the Swag Closet Humanor, dubbed the Divorcinator. All these products were built and designed by Drew Estate Subculture Studios. 
If you're not a member, download the Drew Diplomat app from the Apple Store or Google Play Store today. And we're back. This is uh, John, the Cigar Surgeon, uh, as your host here on CigarFederation.com live and Facebook live with my co-host, Trippy Trent. And Trippy, you're mentioning we have a question, audience question. We do, about what we were just talking about. So I feel like nice. now's the right time. Uh, Jason Savka says, what do they do with those leaves that are per- pulled early? Do they pull them out of the curing process or leave them? Um, so those ones that they w- were said were pulled early, I think they said those ones they weren't really going to use. They were no. kind of too green in the curing barn, and it was just like, oh, well, those are, those are just, we're not going to be able to sell them, so we're just going to get rid of them as soon as curing's over. Yeah, I mean, their goal, because, so, if you've been to a traditional farm, uh, they're growing Viso Seco Lajero, um, and various levels of, of priming. That is, some of that uh, is going to be high priming, some of it's going to be low priming, and a small percentage of that is going to be wrapper, a very, very small percentage. And most farms don't grow wrapper because wrapper is really hard to grow. This farm grows 100% wrapper. That is, yeah. all of the point of the tobacco is wrapper. Now, their yield isn't going to be 100% because if it was 100%, they'd be laughing and, and taking that to the bank. But uh, really, the goal is any leaves that don't make that cut, they can't. They can't, um, they can't have that go into their processes. So the leaves, those leaves are po- uh, thrown away. Like they just discard them because they got to have the best possible yield and the best possible quality. Um, because you know, these, these are wrapper leaves and wrapper leaves have to be damn near perfect. Yeah. If you're charging, I mean, I don't know the going rate for a wrapper leaf, but if you're, ch- I know approximately how much they cost and it's quite a bit per pound. It's a and lot. It, if you're charging that much, you can't be selling somebody. I, I think the number that I've heard most of the time is that you get about 70% of what you buy can actually be used as a wrapper if you're mm-hmm. buying wrapper quality. Um, and the farmers, of course, they don't want that number to go down to 50 because then the buyer is going to say, well, if I'm only getting 50% out of this, then why am I paying you this much? Yeah. Um, so th- they their goal is to have the largest amount of usable leaves in what they're selling yep um any other questions comments feedback before we uh i just want to talk about the connecticut shade stuff before we go on to the um, broadleaf uh don bleaker says that the uh the drew estate fields were actually hit with a hailstorm the week before we were there oh. and uh it literally ruined the entire crop they said all of this tobacco in this field is useless and somebody said, are you going to turn that into short filler? And they said, the labor cost is more than we can sell it for. Wow. Um, so I don't think that Generals, either of the farms that we were at, had that problem. The Connecticut Shade Field said they had a, they had, a slight they had a hailstorm. loss. Yeah, they said they had a hailstorm. And he was saying that uh, and the nice thing about having Connecticut Shade with a cheesecloth is the cheesecloth actually prevents the hail from damaging the tobacco field. Yeah, they were saying that uh, because the plants were so tall, the plants were so tall, they were actually pushing up against the cheesecloth. And they said that having the plants push up against the cheesecloth makes it so when things like hail land on top, distributing that weight all across, um, and they had very little damage. So before we go into the broadleaf, um, two things. First of all, uh, Connecticut shade, holy God, is that a tall tobacco plant? Like mm-hmm. that was way like taller. Feet. It was like seven. I mean, it was above my hand span. Um, and the second thing, which I found really interesting from an agronomy perspective, 
is they don't take the flowers off. And we talked at length about that. And essentially they said they tried, you know, multiple variations of like taking the leaf or taking the flower off at some stage, not taking the flower off, uh, topping the plant, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and basically what they came to the conclusion of was that the top couple rows of leaves, the coronal leaves are just not going to be usable. Yeah. And taking the flower off doesn't do anything for the plant. Well, so you so, save the labor. So what they said <clears throat> is that, um, so, so before I get into this, the goal with a sun-grown wrapper, uh, which is Connecticut Broadleaf, Connecticut Habano, um, any of the like real thick, dark wrappers that are out there, the goal is to get the thickest leaf possible. So like with that partagus leaf, that's why they pull everything except the lajero off. They want it to be thick because that for the farmer, they weigh more, they get paid by the pound, and for the cigar maker, it has more flavor. Connecticut, the goal is to make the thinnest leaf possible because that's what people want from Connecticut. They want a thin, fragile, delicate leaf. And those top leaves are too thick anyway. Yep. And if they top the plant, the Viso and Seiko get too thick. Yep. And and the other thing, the uh, Connecticut uh, shade tobacco, um, the leaf I would describe, because we, we were touching various plants, it was very silky. Like it was like mm -hmm. silk material and the veins in that are almost not present. Like you, like you look at the leaf and when you stretch it out, you can't see the veins at all. And that's what they're looking for is a very, very large, very elastic, very thin, silky leaf. And, uh, and they were getting, I mean, these leaves were freaking huge. Yeah, it was. They're bigger than I was, I was expecting for Connecticut yeah. Shade, because that's the first time I've actually seen Connecticut Shade up close before harvest. And he was, I mean, we won't go into it, but he talked at length about nicotine just distribution within the leaf. Yeah. Um, and where the nicotine uh, tends to distribute on a Connecticut Broadleaf and a Connecticut Shade. Um, so talking about Connecticut Broadleaf, so first of all, the fact they were topping these plants, like literally, and I mean, by topping, I mean, Take a machete and you cut the top third of the plant right off and you, and then you cap it so that it doesn't continue to grow because you're looking for those middle viso leaves, like Trippy was saying, to get as big and as thick as possible. And, and like, I can't underscore, like it was like rawhide, like this stuff, if you slapped somebody with one of these leaves, they would feel it. Like it is a and, beefy, beefy leaf. And while we were, when we were at the Connecticut Shade, plants were like seven feet tall. Mm-hmm. And the broadleaf plants were like waist height, like yeah. three, maybe three, three four and a half feet. at most. And, but the leaves were just so like meaty. And then they do do stock cutting. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm sure people have heard of stock cut Habana. Well, stock cut broadleaf, you're taking the entire stock down. And then another thing that was unique that I've never seen in another farm, they're actually piercing the stock. And they have a they have a big spiky thing that you pierce the stalk. It cracks the first sort of um, I'd say what six inches, eight inches yeah. of the stalk. And part of the reason for that is they want to interrupt the growing process. And part of the reason for that is they found by doing that, all of the the leaves the, there's about three level three levels of viso. They'll they'll cure at the same rate. Versus if you let the leaf, the stalk stay intact, you're going to get a couple of those leaves are going to be curing a little bit faster than the other ones. Mm -hmm. um, so they just found that, you know, again, they've been doing this for a very long time. They've got their process down to, it's a science. Yeah, it's it's just crazy to see how much, how much variation there is in different processes. And of course, just how much work goes into making a thing for us to set on fire. Yeah, all we're going to do is burn it. 
and 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 blow smoke everywhere like a bunch of jerks. Yeah, exactly. And and it's such a labor-intensive process to get it done, and there's so much uh, thought behind every single step in the process. Yeah, and I mean, we could talk at length. Oh, I guess one of the things we didn't talk about, uh, which I found kind of interesting, I don't know how in- interested our audience would be, um, the the field, the soil composition for the broadleaf was essentially like sand. Like it mm-hmm. was really like like literally somebody had dumped sand with maybe some slight dirt underneath. Um, very, very granulated versus Connecticut broadleaf, which is more of that sort of clumpy, um, not really clay, but more of that clumpy style soil. Um, and that's yeah. just the different soil composition for the the different plants. That's you know the broadleaf likes that that sandy style leaf, uh, so the roots can really have to really work to get down there. And the uh, Connecticut shade a little bit different. Yeah, it's that, and it's really interesting because they're growing those on farms that are sometimes like across the street. Mm-hmm. And uh, literally, it's yeah, literally, and it's just they have to change the way that they treat the soil on in the off season, like the, uh, the off season crops they plant so that they can cultivate that specific style of soil so that their tobacco comes out pretty much the same every time. I mean, it was, um, it was cool. And then we went out to a great dinner, um, afterwards in the evening. Um, it was a really, really nice place on the, uh, it was called the mill on the river mill on the river. Um, fantastic meal spread. Uh, unfortunately we couldn't smoke in the restaurant. It's kind of funny to me that Connecticut with such a, a vast tobacco growing culture, um, has, you know, very stringent rules about smoking just like many other places. So I, I kind of chuckled, uh, we yeah. did get a chance to smoke sort of off to the side, which was good. Uh, the dinner was, you know, phenomenal. Um, we had, we, we kind of did a couple of, uh, Seafood towers because I figured you know kind of being up in the North New England ish kind of area, got to get my got to get my seafood on, and it was it was good. I mean it was it was really good, really good. Yeah, all the food there was really good. We didn't go for the seafood tower though. Maybe we should. Um, oh, it was good. You you knowing Brian Hewitt, we went for calamari and cheese. Absolutely, yeah. We went we as soon as um I think it was um can't remember who who was the uh, sacrificial lamb at the table. Somebody suggested the um. Might have been Patrick suggested the seafood tower, and I was like, "Yep, absolutely." See all of the seafood. Give me the mussels. Give me the uh, oysters. Give me the crab. Give me the lobster. Give me all the seafood. It's delicious and fantastic. And uh, yeah, I t- tore it up. Awesome. Yeah, the the food there was so good. And then we went out to uh, mm. beer, a beer bar called Eli right. Cannons afterwards. That we were all very surprised allowed us to smoke cigars around all their hipsters. They did. They did not care. We we did drive some of the hipsters out. Um. So dirty hipsters left. Uh. But man, the beer there was uh was pretty darn good. Yeah, they had a pretty good beer selection, and we closed that place out at like eleven o'clock. It was not not a very late uh, night. I feel like it was closer to twelve thirty by the time we got out of there. But. I'm trying I mean, to was, remember. It was either 11:30. I think it was, I was running around 11:30 when they were starting to kick us out. Yeah, I was running on fumes at that point, which is funny because I think their their listed closing time was one, but uh, and they were not interested in staying around to one for for us. And uh, a bunch of us had to uh, catch flights the next day, um, so that's probably for the best that we left when we did. Yeah. So yeah, it was um, it was a cool experience. It was like I said, it was a very educational experience. Uh, I probably learned more about the agronomy side of things than I've ever 
learning a trip before, like just because it was so detailed and so focused on that. Um, and we, we're going to have some videos and some pictures and some interviews and stuff that we'll post in a, in a write up in the coming days. Cause, um, yeah, I mean, like we spent, it was close to nine hours, I think. And, uh, pretty much talking and asking questions for the entire time. And I feel like yeah. we could have spent another day there. Not that I would have wanted to be in the fields for the other day, but I feel like we could have spent another day just talking tobacco and agriculture and, uh, and learning cause it was, uh, it was cool. Yeah. It- I mean, there's, it's weird because when I'm explaining it to a layman, somebody who's not into cigars, it sounds like such a dumb thing. Like, I like setting these things on fire and putting them in my mouth and see what they taste like. Um, but to me, it's like, it's such a deep passion and I can talk about tobacco for weeks on it. Yeah. I could, I could like just spend time at a farm or a factory and just have fun learning for weeks. Absolutely. Any other uh, parting questions, comments, feedback from the audience before we wrap up uh, tonight's cigar chat? Let me refresh here and check, but I don't believe so. Yeah, that's it. No right. other no other burning questions. Cool beans. Well, thanks for all our live audiences tuning in. Thanks to all our podcast listeners out there. We know you guys are in there in droves. Thanks to all our Armed Forces Radio Network listeners wherever you are tuned in around the world. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting the show. We hope we've kept you entertained for this 58 minutes of shenanigans. We'll be back next Wednesday and Thursday. Wednesday, we'll have a regular scheduled sharing our pairings. Thursday, we'll have a regular scheduled cigar chat. You'll want to check out our calendar at CigarFederation.com. We'll details on that. And I uh, hope everyone has a great weekend and stay safe.